Hello and welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Baute Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. As you probably know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. The following recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to another edition of the i3 Investment Podcast. This is Daniel Grioli, Market Fox Editor, and with me today I have Alison Fish from Pazina Investment Management. Alison is a portfolio manager that works with a team of investors managing a variety of strategies, including emerging markets, international equities, uh, global best idea equities, and international small caps. Alison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Daniel. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for coming in. We, uh, you're in Australia for a fairly short time, coming from New York, so we're glad that you could squeeze us in to talk all things value investing and emerging markets. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us your story. How did you get to be where you are today with Pazina? To be quite honest, it was a little bit of happenstance. So when I uh, first graduated from university, I didn't know much of anything about the world, but wanted to learn things. And so the first job that I got was at McKinsey in New York doing management consulting, because that seemed to be a way to learn a lot about a lot of different industries and kind of figure out what clicked. Um, so I spent a few years there, but you know, I have to say that for me, the most interesting part of being in management consulting was the first couple of weeks of every project because that was when you got to analyze the problem and try to figure out what the potential solution would be. And at least in my experience, then you spent the next several months sort of communicating that around the organization, which was a little bit less my, my cup of tea. And while I was there, you know, I, I got the sense more and more that I would be working on sort of one part of a business and I wanted to do something that was bigger picture and really had to do with the economics of the businesses that I was looking at. That said, I had no education in economics beyond a class in high school. Truthfully, I studied psychology and drama in college. And so when I was leaving McKinsey, I looked at a lot of different potential uh, job opportunities. And Pazina Investment Management had actually posted on a job board at McKinsey because there were several uh, ex-consultants there as well. And so I went over and started interviewing at the firm. This is back in 2001. At the time, we were managing two and a half billion dollars. Now we're just shy of 40 billion, so much, much smaller place at the time. But over a number of conversations with the team there, I I learned what value investing was. I really didn't even know um, and saw that I really liked it. I mean, I spent hours and hours talking to these guys about businesses and uh, business frameworks and business models and thinking about how these companies create value over time. And the whole thing just sort of clicked and I really liked it. Um, so, you know, I'm not one of those people who at the age of three thought I want to be an investor and I'm really passionate and, you know, I love money and, and that's what I want to do. I was really just more of a curious and analytical person who sort of clicked with this set of super nerds that I met at Pazina. 
That's an interesting story. Um, so you mentioned that your background's a little different. You obviously came from a more of an arts background and was drawn to investing from a, a love of solving problems and trying to figure out how companies work. How do you think that background gives you either a different perspective or an edge from, say, those that come into investing from more of a traditional accounting or quantitative background? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. You know, my view on um, accounting and sort of the technical aspects of investing are that's much more of a skills skills base that you need to get. And certainly I had to build that out once I entered the field. But from my perspective, value investing is really all about psychology because it's fear and it's excitement that cause spreads to widen out and cause them to narrow. And that's what the value cycle is. So I think, you know, while there's the psychology of the individual, which is much more what I had studied in school, sort of the psychology of markets and the irrationality of investors is what really creates the opportunity for active management and for value investing. So I think it sort of does play into this, although not quite in the way that you would have thought. And certainly it wasn't a deliberate choice to take that path. That's that's uh, an interesting response, and I'm I'm thinking as you're talking as well. I wonder if you had have had the traditional finance education where you learn mean variance optimization and efficient market hypothesis and all of that that theory, whether whether that would have in some way changed your perspective because. Um, I, I share a similar background in that I'm a psychology major as well, oh. and it. <laughs> It does give you a very different perspective because you you see possibly the irrationality stand out a lot more mm -hmm. in what happens in markets. And I just wonder if, if that's as a result of the background, in, in my case I think it is, uh, as opposed to having learnt all of that theory that you can't beat the market early uh -huh. in, in my career. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, that's an interesting point. And and that may well be true. You know, it's hard to go back and, and think about what could have been or, or would have been. But, you know, I, I don't know if it's a perhaps a result of our educations that we think this way or that we're the type of people who would think this way anyway. And that's sort of what drew us first to, to studying psychology and then into investing as well. Okay. So you're at Pazina now. You've managed to convince them that uh, you're worth a shot. Uh, you've obviously got this background in psychology, a, an interest in finding out more about companies. Where did it go from there? Mm -hmm. So when I first joined Pizina, we are organized um, on the research team by sector globally. So you study an industry. Um, at that time, we had a U.S. small cap portfolio where there were a whole bunch of companies falling through the cracks because we only had a handful of analysts. So I was the U.S. small cap generalist analyst for a number of years, and we rotate sector coverage. So that was how I spent the first three, four years at Pazina. And then I, I entered the normal sort of industry sector coverage and covered a number of industries, consumer discretionary, insurance among them. And then as a firm, we expanded into global and international strategies in 2004. And that was the first time that we touched those companies from a, a direct investing perspective. Although I will say that all the way back to the founding of the firm, when we would look at a company, we had to take into account its non-US competitors, customers, et cetera. And so it was sort of always the vision that we would get global over time. 
And also in 2004, when we launched those global and international strategies is when we began to invest in emerging markets companies as well as part of those mandates. Um, but it wasn't until the latter part of 2006 that we started to think about carving out emerging markets as its own strategy. And from, you know, in terms of my role in that, you know, I'd been at the firm a bit over five years at that time, which seems like not very much now that it's been almost 18 years. Um, but I was tasked with sort of thinking about, you know, could we, should we launch this strategy and what would it look like and, and does it make sense for us? And so those very early years of thinking about and incubating the strategy um, were, were pretty interesting and exciting, though unclear, you know, if anything would ever become of it at that stage. Okay, so you've spent, it sounds like you've spent the, the, the spectrum from U.S. equities to develop XUS to emerging and you've tr you've had to invest using a value philosophy across all three what are the differences between them or are there any differences between them mm -hmm. yeah so so there are differences i will say that you know one thing that we thought about when we were first going to enter the emerging markets was well should we you know does value investing even work in emerging markets so we did a lot of work on that sort of on the on the front end and what we found was that although when people think about emerging markets, they think growth, 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 there's no reliable correlation between GDP growth and stock price performance. And what actually historically has worked well in emerging markets investing is using either a valuation-based approach or a momentum-based approach. And in fact, not only does a valuation-based approach work well in emerging markets, if you look at it over the long term, it's actually worked better in emerging markets than in the developed world. So I will say, you know, the, the idea that value should be our friend in terms of helping us to outperform felt even stronger in emerging markets. Now, recent experience, that has not been the case, but value works in cycles, and, and it always does. But the differences in investing in, in global and emerging markets from a value perspective, or really any perspective, um, are significant, but not overwhelmingly so. I mean, the way that we think about the world of investing is we really look at it by industry. And when, when a company is in a certain industry, the value creation is through a similar means, no matter where it's sitting the discovery of what that is and the path to normalization within the business can look a little bit different in economies that are more immature. Um, certainly the technical aspects of understanding accounting differences, dealing across geographies and time zones and languages can be a bit more difficult um, than when you're you know, on your, on your home turf. But the opportunity set is so much wider because you have all of these different countries with different economies that are in different places in the economic cycle. And the opportunity set of sort of idiosyncratic problems and companies in pain is just that much broader when you're looking at the emerging world. Okay. Now, now I know you're a bottom-up investor, but when you're looking at emerging companies, do you have to think more about the macro? And if so, how do you incorporate it into your process? Mm -hmm. So when we think about sort of country issues, you really approach it from two fronts. So the first is for each company that we're thinking about investing in, we're driving towards a long-term forecast of the earnings power of that business. And so you always have to take into account where it sits. You know, if it's a 
if it's a bank in Mexico versus one in the UK, you know, you have two very different sets of levels and changes of interest rates, currencies, banking penetration, all of these things, which, which are really macro elements coming into play. But even beyond that, traditionally, country selection hasn't much mattered in the developed world in terms of investment outcomes. But in emerging markets, it's been quite important historically. Um, that's changing a bit as we move forward in time. But nevertheless, we, we accept the fact that we would be naive to ignore the importance of country selection. So what we do is we apply different discount rates to emerging markets companies. So the valuation metric that we're focused on as, as deep value investors is what's the ratio of each company's stock price to its normalized earnings per share number. And so that normalized earnings per share number is the outcome of a discounted cash flow. So there's always a discount rate involved. But for developed market companies, we use the same discount rate across all of them. For emerging markets companies, we use higher rates. And the way that we get those is we take the three-year average of the difference in yields between each country's dollar-denominated sovereign bond and U.S. 10-year treasuries, and then we add that on to the rate that we're already using for our developed market companies, and then we roll it once a year. So basically, it's you know it's sort of a, a complicated to, to talk about, but the way to think about it is a dollar of earnings out of Russia is worth less than a dollar of earnings out of Taiwan, which is worth less than a dollar of earnings out of Australia. Okay. For listeners interested in finding out more about that process, uh, Professor DeModeran at NYU Stern does something similar every year where he will take uh, U.S. discount rates and adjust them by the credit spreads for various countries, and he publishes that on his blog as a, an interactive map that you can, you can see. So uh, slightly different process, but similar philosophy, and it will give listeners an idea of what Alison is talking about uh, when she's adjusting discount rates for emerging market investing. But coming back to this term that you used earlier, normalized earnings power, uh, would you be able to take us through what that really means? Sure, so, sure. What are you normalizing and, and how do you define that earnings power? Uh-huh. So the way to think about it is what should this business earn five years from now in an environment that is fairly mid-cycle. So in practice, what that means is that for our research process, we begin with a quantitative screening tool that takes 10 years of history for each company and its industry and naively tries to predict the future. Um, I say it's five years out, that's, that's simplifying it a little bit. It's actually 10 years out and then discounted back to five years. But for simplicity's sake, we'll say that we're going for year five. And the way that we get there is by essentially reverting to the mean on every financial metric that you can think of. So what this does is it helps us to identify companies that are in pain. So to simplify it with an example, if, if we had a business where historically this business and its industry had had a 10% operating margin, and for some reason this year, it's zero, zero percent, zero earnings. So what does the current PE of that business look like? Well, it's, it's infinity, right, because it has zero earnings. But what this tool will do is it will say, in year five of the forecast, we're going back to that 10% operating margin. And then you'll have a stream of earnings that goes flows through to that normalized earnings per share number. And that's the metric that we're focusing on in the screening tool. In addition, we also standardize across balance sheets using this tool. So if a company is highly levered, it's forced to issue equity in year one of the forecast at today's 
presumably depressed stock prices, so it's very punitive. So what that enables us to do is to look at companies on an apples-to-apples basis. So there's no valuation benefit to being highly levered. And again, that's the starting point of the research process. So by using this tool and only looking at the cheapest companies in our investment universe based on this naive valuation metric, we can choose which companies we want to research. And then the research process is really the deep dive by the research team to figure out, you know, not is what not what is that naive normalized earnings per share number, but what do we believe it will really be in a normalized environment? What should this company earn? Will the future look like the past, or has there been some permanent impairment to the business such that we won't be earning that 10% operating margin in the future? So if I understand you correctly, you're looking for companies that are sick, but you're trying to figure out whether it's a cold or whether it's terminal. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it. So what are the sort of factors you, you look at to make that determination about whether something is temporary or permanent? Well, it really varies according to what, what the business is. And, you know, this is where having a team that's organized by industry becomes very helpful because then we have a set of industry specialists who really understand how a business should create value within a particular environment. And so when we come across one that has hit a speed bump, um, it can be very useful. I mean, I would say there are generally two sets of circumstances that can cause a company to get cheap on normalized earnings. The first is sort of widespread pain throughout an industry or throughout an economy. The second is sort of idiosyncratic and perhaps self-inflicted wounds, where there's something very particular to this business that's happening. And to my mind, sort of the sweet spot for Pizina is when you have a little bit of both, right? Something bad is happening in the industry. It's compounded by mistakes the company has made. We can see the path to normalization either way, right? Even if the environment doesn't improve, there are actions that the company could take to improve its own destiny. And maybe the environment will get better as well. Do you look for potential catalysts in that, or do you think of value as its own catalyst in that if it's cheap enough, eventually either somebody will come along and take it over or, or something will happen? And mm-hmm. You know, when we meet with outsiders, we hear the word catalyst a lot. If you walk the halls of, of Pizina, you will never hear that word. Um, I think the, the reality is, is that when we're investing, we're only looking at the cheapest 20% of the investment universe. So these are the companies where the catalyst is so far off into the horizon, no one's even talking about it, right? It's invisible. It's invisible. It really is. And so the job of the research team is to uncover what what the set of circumstances are such that, that this path to normalization will occur. Because the reality is, once the catalyst is identifiable on the horizon, the stock has already moved. It's not in the first quintile anymore. Um, so we're really trying to capture it before that even happens. Now, that's not to say that that we don't believe that there's some plan to restoring the earnings power of the company. There has to be. If there isn't, then you have a situation of permanent impairment. It's just that you know it doesn't have to be visible in the next three or six months or even in the next year. We're very, very patient with our investments. Okay. You're, you're patient, but just how patient? So I remember in, in my readings of Benjamin Graham's work, he used to advise that if you bought a, a cheap stock with a, a decent margin of safety and nothing happened within about two or three years to get rid of the stock, how long will you give something to work out? We don't have a time limit on a stock. Um, We do have a strict sell discipline. 
So we'll only buy stocks when they're in that cheapest quintile of, of valuation. We must sell a stock when it reaches the midpoint of the investment universe on our valuation metric, again, of stock price divided by normalized earnings per share. Now, the way you want to get there is the stock price goes up. The way you might get there is that your view of the normalized earnings power of the business goes down. So that's why, as a research analyst, your work isn't done when the stock gets into the portfolio. In fact, your work is just beginning. I mean, the level of engagement with management should only kick up from that point. Your monitoring of the business should only kick up. And every data point that comes in, once we buy the stock, you should be using to say, did I get it right? Did I get it right? Is this helping to confirm my thesis about what this company should earn? Or is it evidence in the other direction? And if it's evidence in the other direction, such that we're questioning our view, then in some cases we will take down our view of the normalized earnings power of the company. But if time has just passed and it hasn't played out yet, and nothing has deteriorated about the business, you really should be getting closer and closer to, to that normalized earnings power materializing. That's interesting. And do you ever take an activist role with any of the companies? We definitely engage with management teams when we think they should be behaving differently, um, but I wouldn't call us activist investors. Okay. So coming back to your earlier definition of a normalized earnings power, one word that I didn't hear you say in your explanation was growth. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about growth in the business when you're figuring out what a normalized earnings power might be? We do need to forecast the growth because you're right. I mean, depending on, on what the business is, we're not against owning companies that are, are growing quickly. However, being able to sustain high double-digit revenue growth over a 10-year period is, is fairly rare. Um, that said, that will be a part of the analysis. It's not just about the operating leverage in the business, though certainly that tends to be where more of our focus may lie because it's a bit more analyzable. Okay. So you mentioned that value works in cycles, and the current value cycle that we've been in has probably been one of the worst for a long time in that it's been, I think, by some measures, close to 10 years um, during which value has had relatively poor returns. Is it broken or is something different this time? I know it's dangerous to say that, but mm -hmm. interested in your thoughts. Yeah, well, Daniel, that's what they say every time. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm being a bit glib, but if you look at where we're sitting today, certainly within emerging markets, you know, Thinking of what's happened over the last decade, or really the last two decades, has been quite an amazing ride, right? Just thinking about profitability in emerging markets, the 2000s was such an incredible boom, really fueled by China's growth, uh, which was accompanied by a thirst for everything commodity-related, which really was a, sort of a tide that lifted all boats in emerging markets. Including Australia, too. Including Australia, exactly. And so during that time, you know, you had profitability reach levels that it had never gone before in emerging markets. So, you know, it's just like someone getting drunk at a party. The, the, the bigger the high, the bigger the hangover. And certainly we saw that, that begin in the beginning of 2011, which was when emerging market profitability began to drop. Demand was slowing, but even, even more worryingly, the supply side of the equation sort of caught up with the view that 
emerging markets demand was going to grow forever, right? So profitability began to drop, emerging markets began to underperform developed, value stocks began to underperform globally, um, tying the value cycles of emerging markets with developed markets, which you don't always see, but certainly in this cycle you did. And so it was several years of pain and of, 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 of winding where you saw this underperformance of value in emerging markets. But I think what people lose sight of is that although profitability was coming down in those years, it wasn't until 2014 that returns on equity for emerging markets even got down to where the long-term average for the for the space was. So it, it took quite some time. And then the, those returns on equity bottomed out at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016. And as you know, 2016 was a fantastic year for value globally. Um, and in particular in emerging markets, you saw a huge value rally. And really what was happening at that stage was that people saw the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, suddenly it didn't look like the world was going to end. All of these stocks and economies that had looked uninvestable were too cheap to ignore. The capital spending cycle looked like it had begun to bottom out. After years and years of doing nothing but cut costs, all of a sudden companies got a little bit of relief on the top line and the operating leverage really blew past any analyst expectations. And, and that was a great year. Now, 2017, really had, had teed up to be a bit of a continuation of that. Certainly, economic underpinnings are still there. The macro environment is still very conducive uh, for value equities globally. But the issue in 2017 is a bit different to what we saw in 2016. So 2016, spreads were very wide in terms of valuation going into the year. But what you saw was that value stocks were very, very cheap at that time because of the rally of 2016 and the beginning of 2017, valuation spread still looked pretty wide, but everything had moved up. And what became even more extreme over the course of 2017 wasn't that value stocks did badly. They were up double digits also. It's that the expensive stocks got even more expensive. Um, but we've seen this happen before. You know, Sometimes you get a period of value outperformance because the value stocks do especially well. And sometimes you get a period of value outperformance because the expensive stocks come down. You know, I'll leave it up to you to think about which, which way things may go from here. So interesting that you talk about those expensive stocks because they're, I guess we can say the names, Tencent, Alibaba, they're now such a large part of the index. I think from memory, Tencent's over 5% of the index. So it's become quite concentrated. And even tech, I was surprised to see uh, a month ago when I checked the numbers that the exposure to tech companies in the emerging market index is around about 28%, mm -hmm. which is higher than the US. Yeah, yeah. Which we mm -hmm. think of as being tech heavy. How does that change your job? The fact that the nature and the composition of the market is shifting into more of these names that perhaps a typical value process may not buy. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that it's all about knowing what we do and sticking to it, and quite frankly, making sure that the people who have hired us also understand what we do. You're absolutely right about the index. The emerging market index is more concentrated than global indices, you know, almost by definition, but where we sit today, the biggest five companies in the emerging markets index are almost 20% of the index. And there are, 
they account for a huge portion of the return. Just 10 cent in and of itself um, is 25% of the return of the index over the last five years. So not owning that one stock really took a hit. If you add in NASPERS, whose entire value is, is its stake in 10 cent, that goes up to a third of the return of the index. So it's very punitive to returns to have not owned those names. That said, with our investment philosophy, we're not going to own it. it. It doesn't screen up for us. We're not doing the work on it. It's, it's not making it into the portfolio. Now, that obviously has been painful uh, in, the, in the recent history. But if you look historically at how the biggest index names tend to fare over time, and, and this is an analysis that we did for the US market and for Acqui as well. We haven't done it specifically for emerging markets because you don't really have the, the long-term history that you have in these other investment classes. But if you look at how these, these biggest index names have done over time, and we looked at it for Acqui, the, the 10 biggest names over a one-year, three-year, five-year, and 10-year period moving forward, it's quite bad, <laughs> the outcome for, for your likely uh, portfolio performance. And in the U.S., we have even a longer history, which demonstrates the same effect. So, you know, I would sort of caution against everyone piling into the names where everyone else is, because that does drive the valuations to unsupportable levels at a certain stage. Okay. So, so those names look a bit too rich for your process. Where do you see opportunities? Well, what's great about where we sit today is that in emerging markets, we see opportunities in many different places. You know, if we had had this conversation two years ago, the opportunity set was much more concentrated in highly cyclical areas like materials, energy, industrials. Today, because we've sort of come off the bottom of the pain in emerging markets, but I, I would like to add, profitability is still below long-term averages, which is different to what you see in the developed world. I think well, it's 20, 30 percent below last time I mm -hmm. checked. Yeah. So yeah. what so what you see is although the pain is not extremely acute and concentrated in some areas, you can find lots of different points of pain, both caused by industry pain as well as idiosyncratic company pain. And so as a research team, we're pretty excited because we're seeing companies in industries that we hadn't looked at before, in geographies where we had, had never looked at any companies at all. And what that does is, first of all, it's interesting from a research perspective to look at something new, but also it allows you to create a portfolio with a very diverse set of exposures. And quite frankly, as a portfolio manager, you sleep better at night when that's the kind of portfolio you have because the world doesn't need to evolve in any one way in order to, to necessarily lead to outperformance of the portfolio. So over the time that you've been managing emerging market strategies, which has been just over 10 years, what do you think has been the biggest change during that period to emerging markets? Well, the, the composition of emerging markets, I mean, if you roll back the clock to, to when we first launched this strategy of January 1, 2008, that was basically the, the peak <laughs> of emerging markets just before the GFC. Great time to start. Yeah. I know, right? Um, well, we, we knew that we w weren't necessarily picking the right time, but it was the time that worked for our organization. We had the research team and the resources to do it. Um, but at that stage, if you looked at what was in our portfolio, you know, we had a decent amount of consumer staples. We have almost none today. Our exposure in consumer discretionary was almost exclusively emerging markets businesses that catered to Western consumers um, because there was thought that you know the emerging story was just going to go on and on and on forever. Today we have true EM consumer exposures in there in a lot of different areas. You know what's what's great about 
our emerging markets portfolio from my perspective is we have the ability to go down fairly low in market cap so we have companies like Chinese car dealership networks you know which are smaller cap names but have sort of an interesting phenomenon happening where you have a maturation of the business itself which historically just lived off of making very fat profits on new car sales which you don't see in developed markets it was simply an artifact of the idea that there was an undersupply of new car sales and huge huge demand but maturing away from that profitability stream into maintenance after service financing used car sales which haven't even existed before um, and that's sort of coupled with changes in the auto sales cycle within China and, and so it's a very interesting marriage of those of those two pieces you know also looking at the portfolio sort of as we moved through the the big pain years in emerging markets I would say we did a lot a lot of work on cyclical companies particularly in the materials space but we're underweight for quite a long time today we're slightly overweight having moved into that position um, two years ago and and now we've been trimming those names a lot of them have performed well but still slightly overweight to materials okay what about issues that uh, commonly here in reference to emerging markets such as governance or investing in state-owned or semi-state uh, companies or companies where you have uh, a founding family or a large shareholder that retains a stake. How do you deal with those issues in emerging mm -hmm. markets? There, well, there tend to be today a valuation discount on those companies. And I say today because there was certainly a time when state-owned enterprises were thought to be the best companies in emerging markets and, and traded at a premium. So from our perspective, if something is cheap and trading at a discount and that discount is wider than it's ever been, well, as a value investor, you better sit up and, and take note of that. Um, and perhaps make an investment. Now, how do we get comfortable with investing in these companies where the controlling shareholder may not have the same interests as we do, as the minorities? Well, part of it is to not predict future behavior to be different from past behavior and to expect the majority shareholder to behave in a way that is most in favor of its own interests. Here's the psychology background coming through again. <laughs> well, I think it's a little bit simpler than that. I mean, quite frankly, if you have a company that historically has blown an extra 20% of capital spending every year on social projects and you don't really know where it goes and they're not earning any economic return, well, it would be illogical to assume that moving forward that's going to end. But if you can perpetuate that into the future, and remember, our normal earnings stream goes out 10 years, um, then there's a, a very big punitive effect to that earnings per share number because of the waste of, of cash flow going in there. Mm -hmm. that's, that's interesting. So a question I was thinking about today um, was the idea of we have a lot of emerging market specialist strategies, global specialist strategies, not many ACWI strategies. Do you think we'll see a day when more and more, and by ACWI I mean, sorry, uh, all country world index, where more and more investors and investment strategies manage global and developed markets together? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it seems as though there's a big interest um, for people to have, to offer those sorts of strategies. We offer them, so, you know, we're, we're certainly there as well. I think that it's very helpful to have 
the ability to do deep research in emerging markets if you're going to offer these sorts of strategies because emerging markets are a big part of the aqua universe and and only growing and so being able to identify the best potential opportunities and not just be limited to these huge index names um, which everyone knows is very helpful mm-hmm. now I'm, I'm going to use a cliche now so please forgive me disruption Mm-hmm. We hear a lot about disruption, its effect on companies. I'm sure value managers get it all the time because they're probably um, accused by their critics of owning all of the things that disruption is going to attack. Uh, one of my favorites, there's a, a group called uh, Bespoke Research, and they often tweet an index that they've created. It's called the Death by Amazon Index. <laughs> where they, uh, they, they plot the performance of all the stocks likely to be disrupted. I know you've done a lot of work on this recently. Just interested in your thoughts as a value manager on this topic of disruption. Mm -hmm. Again, I apologize for using the cliche. Uh, It's not a cliche at all. I mean, I think that it's really what has derailed what should be a great environment for value stocks in the past year because this these disruptors have really taken off in terms of valuation now in emerging markets i think it's not quite fair to call them disruptors because you don't have very many incumbents so you know you you don't have the incumbents getting cheaper you just have the disruptors getting more expensive but certainly in our developed world exposures we've seen a lot of the incumbents getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper um, certainly, the disruptors are at valuations that we don't believe fundamentals justify for the for the most part. Um, but the incumbents are such that some are interesting and some are not, right? Um, and it really depends on what the industry is and what the potential for disruption is and what you need to have in order to be successful in that industry. You know, you look at something like books and CDs, you know, very easily disrupted. Amazon makes sense. That should win. Some other industries we think are a bit more protected, and I'm talking about things like pharmaceutical distribution, where you need to have a lot of licensing. There are regulatory barriers. It's already a very well-consolidated industry within the U.S. That's, that's where we generally are seeing this, operating in very thin margins. Not much of a space for Amazon there, despite the fact that the companies are discounted as though there is. You know, we have significant positions in the advertising agencies where growth traditionally went in line with GDP and has recently decoupled. And there is a real question around, is this cyclical? You know, CPG's, com- CPG's companies cutting back on ad spending or pressure on pricing, or is it structural, i.e. these companies being disintermediated by, by, Glo- by Google and Facebook and Amazon? What we see is that there is still an important role for these agencies. Um, They are being somewhat disrupted by the internet players, as well as, I should add, the consulting agencies like the Accentures of the world. But the truth is there's a a big open playing field in terms of who's going to be successful. And these things are priced as though they're, they're they're going to fail. Um, you know, I could go on and on. Industrial distribution, you know, we've, we've made investments in that space. And we've, we've also passed on a lot of investments because it all depends on where in the value cycle you're playing. You know, if you're a player who's dealing in having thousands and thousands of SKUs where you really need specialist experience and expertise to help customers, as well as having working capital and inventory management, um, you know, that's not quite Amazon's bread and butter versus if you're more of a commodity player, you know, distributing toilet paper and, and plastic gloves and that sort of thing. 
that's going to be wiped out by Amazon. So, you know, I have a colleague who likes to think about this whole thing like there's a big bathtub full of water and somebody's pulled, pulled the plug. And you have some business models that are basically circling the drain. And then you have some that are sort of sitting up at the top of the bathtub. And really the job for a serious value investor at this point is to be able to differentiate between the two. And I can't promise that we're going to get them all right. Um, there may be some good ones that we miss, and there may be some bad ones that we include in the portfolio. But the beauty of, of being a value investor in, in this environment is that you do have this portfolio of opportunities. And if you buy the stocks that are priced as though they're going to fail, and you think they're not, and you do have downside protection embedded in the business, then it's, it's quite an interesting opportunity. But you know, today, disruption is really across so many industries and so many sectors, which, which makes it really a special time. But the reality is, is that in almost every value cycle, there has been some sort of disruption that is causing these companies to get cheap. I mean, thinking back to the beginning of our firm in the late 90s, you know, the disruption at that time was all of these companies producing in China, right? Everybody thought that these developed market industrial manufacturing companies were going to go out of business because China was just going to take over the world. Well, that didn't happen. What did happen? Everybody moved production to China. So you see that the businesses tend to have levers to pull and to flex, not every business. And that's where research comes in. Okay, that's that's interesting. Now, I'd like to get your perspective on a slightly different style of value investing, and that is the the Buffett and Munger style, where you look for companies with moats, and you're happy to pay a little bit more for for those companies because there's this moat that allows the company to reinvest profitably and compound its earnings, and that style of investing has become very popular. But what seems to have happened is some of the, the disruptors that we've just talked about are disintermediating that. And I'm thinking of a video that I saw not long ago where uh, somebody was trying to order Duracell batteries using Amazon's Alexa. And he asked three times for Duracell batteries and three times Alexa offered a cheaper Amazon alternative. And I'm just wondering whether these companies are actually uh, potentially destroying the value of brands mm -hmm. and potentially um, a lot of these companies that historically have been thought of as being safe as having a moat you know, the kind of things that that Warren Buffett would would buy mm -hmm. um, what's going to happen to those companies well I think there are different types of moats right the moat that you talk about is the moat of brand and this is a very big issue, and it's part of the issue that's affecting the advertising agencies as well. Their customers are in trouble. They're under attack, not just versus Amazon's private label, although it's interesting that you mentioned the batteries because one of my colleagues was talking about this as well. You know, I would never buy a generic battery at the store, but I went on Amazon, I saw all these reviews, and I thought, oh, I'll give it a shot. So, I mean, the threat is real, and I, and I don't want to minimize it. It's just funny that you mentioned that that exact example. Um, but the mode of brand is, doesn't mean what it used to be. You know, whether it's the, the private label stuff or the social media upstart company that's not using, you know, traditional advertising and can make its way through using the distribution channel that Amazon presents. So this is a real threat. I mean, one thing that in the defense of, of these more traditional companies is that, you know, when you eventually see 
a, a brand, one of these challenger brands get big enough, they tend to get bought by a big company anyway. So, so that's one thing. But your point on private label may be true, but you know, we had the same issue years ago in when private label first came about in apparel, you know, thinking, is this going to completely displace apparel brands? And what you saw was that private label grew and then it sort of plateaued out at a certain, at a certain point. Now, is that what will happen here or not? I don't know. But the mode of brand is a little bit of a nebulous one. It's an intangible. That's how it's valued on the balance sheet. You see these things get written down and written off all the time. Um, so it is a little bit tougher than, say, a structural moat to a business, you know, an industry structure where the industry has consolidated down to a handful of players, you know, with scores and scores of customers such that the power remains with those particular players. So that's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, it's interesting. So you mentioned uh, brand is one moat. What are some other moats that um, companies have? could have well as I mentioned I think industry structure is a very important one you know one company that we own in the portfolio is Samsung Electronics so going back in history you know the the, the crown jewel of this business really is their franchise in memory in DRAM they're the, the largest company in the world as well as the most profitable in this business the history of DRAM it's pretty bad in terms of profitability. You had scores of competitors, many of which were government supported, meaning they couldn't go out of business even if they should have gone out of business. Um, but as you move forward in time, the industry did consolidate such that now it's down to only a few players. Now the level of profitability today is much higher than the history, but we actually believe that the normal profit of this industry is now higher because you've now got this much more consolidated industry structure. You know, when you look at something like that, that does create a, a moat, if you will, in and of itself. Also, when you look at a particular industry where there's a high need for, to reinvest in capital and there aren't a lot of people who have access to it, that can create um, a, a barrier or a moat, if, as, as you mentioned. I mean, when we think about value investing, it's not the case that we're looking to buy a bunch of optically cheap junk. We like to think of ourselves as people buying good businesses. And when we say good businesses, we mean businesses that would generally return or exceed the cost of capital through the business cycle. You know, I, I think it's fair to say that we're looking for good businesses that have hit a speed bump. Now, does that mean that you have to have some you know, very important moat around the business? No, but, but decent industry structure is an important criteria. It's interesting you mentioned businesses requiring a lot of capital because that seems to be the direction that Warren Buffett is heading in, investing in railroads and now airlines, after they've consolidated and gone through years of pain and bankruptcies. And mm -hmm. So that's uh, interesting. So reflecting back on your career uh, and what you've learnt uh, investing uh, around the world, if you had to give some advice to somebody starting out today like you, stuck at McKinsey, thinking there might be a world outside of cons management consulting, what advice would you give them? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think this is a very, very interesting field to be in. And I love it. You know, every day there's a new problem to think about. 
you get to work with really smart people and talk about ideas and you're not actually doing anything or creating anything. So it's very, very fun. Um, but I do think that it's a difficult industry to be in um, because it is hard to outperform over time. It's hard to find an investment organization that has a serious philosophy that it sticks to um, through bad times and good. And you know, I'm not saying this to be promotional, but I actually feel very fortunate that I sort of stumbled into Pazina because it really is a place that, that believes in the process and in the philosophy of value investing um, and has executed it over time. And so, you know, if I just met a, a kid who wanted to go into this field, uh, I don't know if I'd tell them they should. <laughs> tell them the don't truth. do it, study medicine or law or something else. Exactly, that, I'm gonna tell my own kids that. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, I know you've got a plane to catch, so thank you very much for coming in to uh, chat with us about value investing in emerging markets, and we hope that we can chat with you again soon. Thank you so much, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the i3 Insights Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. Thank you.